Hello, Israel Story listeners, it's Mishi. So, it's been a while, obviously, and we love getting all your notes and emails and messages asking where we are. And today, dear friends, I have two very good pieces of news. The first is that we're getting closer and closer to the start of season four. We've been working tirelessly all year to collect stories, to interview people, to research, to write, to compose, and this summer, we will be back. So stay tuned, Israel Story's new season is around the corner. Second piece of good news, we're about to embark on another North America tour with a brand new live show, which is called The Wall. Stories of the barriers that separate us and those that bring us closer together. It has amazing stories, some of which we've been working on for almost a year. It has phenomenal music played by our favorite house band, which you all know from Mixtape. And it has simply stunning visuals that are going to take us all over Israel. In our end-of-the-year listener survey, only about 11% of you said they had attended a live show. But 88% of you said you would like to attend one. So friends, now is your chance. Our tour starts May 7th in Seattle and ends May 21st in New York. And in addition to Seattle and three NYC shows, we have stops in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Chicago, Toronto, San Diego, and Los Angeles. Check out our website, israelstory.org, for all the details and links to tickets. Okay, so new season coming soon, new live show, now. Don't miss it. In the meantime, if you like our show, you probably already know or listen to our tablet magazine sister show, Unorthodox. And if you don't, you should. It's really wonderful and funny and smart. Mark, Liel, and Stephanie, the hosts, are seriously original, insightful, and deep. So today, we bring you a story from one of their recent episodes. Episode number 177, What's in a Name? Here's producer Noah Levinson. So there's a story that's really common in a lot of American Jewish families about how their last names came to be what they are right now. All right, so say you're a Jew named Robbins. There's a pretty good chance that your family name used to be Rabinowitz. And maybe somebody in your family has already told you this about how your grandpa or your great-grandpa, let's call him Yonkel, came over from Poland or somewhere, and when he arrived at Ellis Island, the immigration officer changed his official name. And henceforth, your Zadie went by the more American-sounding Jacob Robbins. And all of a sudden, at least on paper, Yonkel's a Yankee, a crypto-Jew, passing when he needs to. Of course, this phenomenon is not exclusively Jewish. In fact, its most famous depiction is in the beginning of The Godfather Part Two, where we see a 12-year-old Vito Andolini, fresh off the boat from Sicily, make his way through the Great Hall of Ellis Island. A thousand somber immigrants, with numbers pinned to their coats, crowd the concourse, where each encounters one in a row of uniformed agents at a tall wooden desk, each busily scribbling in a logbook. Vito is alone. What is your name? Come on, son. What is your name? Vito just looks down at his shoes. A translator comes over and checks the ticket. Vito Andolini from Corleone. And thus originates one of the most famous Italian-American family names in fiction. Corleone. Vito Corleone. Okay. Over there. Check. Seventy years after the immigration station there shut down, Ellis Island is still a potent symbol in American history. But what it's a symbol of? Well, that really depends on how you squint. 
On the one hand, it's where over 12 million immigrants entered the U.S. around the turn of the 20th century. Nearly half of all American citizens have a relative who went through Ellis Island. So it has a lot of positive associations for people. But it has a lot of negative ones, too. The inspection process there was routinely terrifying to a new immigrant. While you would wait on the stairs to go in, the doctors would give you a once-over and mark your coat in chalk if they thought you looked sick. If you were, they could send you on the first ship home, separating you from your family. In the 1920s, amidst rising xenophobia, Congress severely restricted immigration. By the end of the 30s, Ellis Island was processing more deportations than new arrivals. During World War II, the government used Ellis Island as an internment camp, where they detained over 7,000 German, Italian, and Japanese-American citizens, some for years. So the memory of these name-change interactions comes in the context of a conflicting history of welcome and unwelcome at Ellis Island. Sure, you can live here, but your name, your identity, there's no room for it in America. My family history contains an Ellis Island name-change story of its own. I asked my grandma Rosie to explain it. My father and my grandfather and grandmother and his siblings came from Russia. They came through Ellis Island. Some of the family had already been here to vouch for them, which was the only way that you could enter the country. What's, what's your dad's name? Max. His name was Max Belfer. But Ellis Island officials changed it to Max Bell. He left out the rest of the name. And all his siblings became known as Bells. Belfer was eliminated. It was never heard from again. And that happened, according to them, at Ellis Island. Do you remember any other details about that story? Not really. That was about uh, all that it was. They shortened it to Bell, and they accepted it. The idea that they just accepted it you know, like stood at the desk, some stranger with a notebook tells them they have a new name now. I have to say that detail has fit pretty easily into my admittedly vague conception of what my predecessors went through to get here. I may not have paid very much attention on all those field trips we took in Hebrew school, Holocaust Museum, the Tenement Museum, Ellis Island in the eighth grade, but if anything stuck from all of that, it was that no aspect of my ancestors' hardship, large or small, should ever seem that unlikely to me. But here's the thing about this one. The Ellis Island officer changing the family name. Most historians and genealogists don't believe that it happened. Kirsten Vermeglish, a professor of Jewish American history and the author of A Rosenberg by Any Other Name, A History of Jewish Name Changing in America. It's very hard to prove a negative, you know what I mean? I, I can't absolutely say that it, it didn't happen to people's relatives, but I would say that historians who say this will point to a number of things, which is that most of their oral histories from people who actually went through the island don't say that, right? So these are stories that get sort of told second and third hand, but most of the oral histories from people who actually went through don't tend to say it. There's no doubt that thousands of Jewish families had their names changed after coming to America, but not at Ellis Island, and not at the whim of government officials. The truth is, they did it voluntarily. Um, you don't think it's possible that they changed their name after they got, um, after they'd already been established in no. the... No, no. 
No, it was changed at, at Ellis Island. They didn't, there would have been no reason for them to change it on their own. They didn't do it. The government did it. So it's just weird because I'm reading these articles which say, no, that's not really what happened. Like they they changed it on their on their own. And a few stories of this Ellis Island officer doing it got blown into a myth that everybody has in their family now, but they don't think it's really true. Well, it may very well be that if they tried to get them to write it, they wouldn't know how. Well, but the... the... They ended, they stopped at the bell. <laughs> okay, so not to like totally belabor the point, but if this book I'm reading that says your family's Ellis Island name change story is very likely one in a big net of myths, your response to that is? Were they there? <laughs> How did the myth taker downers know it wasn't true? Were they there? That's a good point. I got it from the horse's mouth. Okay, thank you very much. I didn't make it up. I don't think he made it up. That was his impression. And it was a one-on-one -on -one thing. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna look into it. Okay, I'll get I'll get back to you on that. Thank you. You're welcome. My pleasure. Mm -hmm. Grandma Rosie is right, of course. The myth taker downers were not there. So I found the next best thing: someone who, when he talks, he makes you feel like he was there. Okay, when you boarded the ship in Europe, you were asked probably about. 20 to 30 questions, depending on the time period. You know, the basic stuff, your name, your age, your occupation. Then they get into the questions that could be tricky. They asked, are you an anarchist? And they asked, are you a polygamist? <laughs> Peter Urban is a park ranger at Ellis Island National Museum. He was a longtime high school history teacher, and you can totally hear it. When he breaks down the process of interviews at Ellis Island, he uses the second person. Like, maybe I'm thinking about immigrating to America. Hopefully you're going to remember your answers. Uh, so don't forget an answer, uh, don't give an incorrect answer, and don't look too shifty or suspicious giving the answer. All of them are reasons for you to be detained. So if you answer all those questions properly, uh, you, they're pretty much going to let you through. I mean, the interview here at Ellis Island by the inspector will probably take about three to five minutes. Bing, bang, boom, they're done. What a lot of people don't realize, according to Peter, is that during these interviews, the immigration officers didn't actually write anything down. They were just checking the immigrants' answers against the ones they had provided to the shipping companies back in Europe. They didn't send the immigrants off with ID cards, passports, anything like that. And contrary to the image of the culturally insensitive immigration officer conjured up by these name-change anecdotes, most Ellis Island immigration officials actually knew three or four languages, and they were pretty familiar with foreign-sounding names. The idea that these officers just changed the information given to them gave people new Anglo-sounding names. It just runs contrary to everything historians know about the process. What you're really looking at here is a myth that has been promulgated just by every ethnic group down through the generations. As a lot of immigrants simply changed their names. Like my original name was Urbanovsky, not Urban. That's what it was when my great-grandfather came here. So the Ofsky is always a tip-off to an American employer or anybody in American society, that you're a foreigner. A lot of immigrants very quickly learned that the Ofsky's not doing me any good here. I don't want to be Urbanovsky anymore. I just want to be Urban. So they, when they were asked their names, they would say Urban. 
when the census came around, they'd say urban. Uh, now, over the years, people start doing their family research, and then they say, well, wait a minute, this says Urbanovsky here. And then somebody's always asking some older member of the family or somebody, what happened to the name? And what's the answer? They changed it at Ellis Island. The easiest thing to say. The inspector changed it at Ellis Island. Then they'll point to Godfather Part Two and say, see? So we actually put the word out to our listeners with Ellis Island name change stories in their own backgrounds to go check them out. Robin Koenig Shapiro got back to us. She'd always thought that her grandfather Abe had had his last name changed from Skorka to Scott at Ellis Island. So she dug out an old tape of her aunt interviewing that grandfather about his journey to America. And how you decided to come and what the trip was like and what was the name of the boat. You got to remember the name. Well... The thing Abe Scott remembered the most was arriving in the harbor in the middle of the night and being woken up by the sound of loud explosions outside. And all of a sudden, I heard a commotion. He thought the ship was under attack. Turns out it was just fireworks. It was New Year's Eve. It was New Year's Eve. What year was it? 1914. New Year's Eve, 1914. Because it was a holiday and there was no one at the immigration station to process the passengers, Abe and everybody else stayed on the boat for an extra day. He arrived at Ellis Island on January 2nd. What was that like? What did you, what was what Ellis Island like? They just like, they handled you like a bunch of cattle. They treated you like a bunch of cattle, he says. You go through that building, and as you go, they make, uh, the officials make marks on your back. You don't even know it. The officials would make marks on your back. You didn't even know it. Were you scared that you might get sent back? That's not scared. Anyway, here comes the part we really cared about. Robin's aunt asks. Is that where they changed your name? No. No, Abe replies. Name changing, that's when you take out citizenship papers. Name changing, that's when you take out citizenship papers. Well, when you went there, you told me your name was Skorka, right? Was your name Skorka? Okay. So when you went through there, it's on the record that you were Abraham Skorka. So if I went looking for a record, I would have to look for Skorka. Until she listened to the tapes, Robin's understanding of the story was that the name was changed at Ellis Island. But it sounds like Abe never even made that claim. Maybe somewhere along the line, someone in her family said the name got changed at Ellis Island to mean it got changed after they came to America. And in Robin's memory, just like so many others, that became literal. Professor Vermeglish thinks that might explain how the myth exists in so many families. It's kind of the entire process of immigration. It's this whole confusing kind of visit to the U.S. That, that sort of is what people mean when they say, Ellis Island changed my name. But Professor Vermeglish didn't really spend a lot of time trying to knock down the Ellis Island name change myth in particular. Instead, she dug into the archives of where most of the name changes actually did occur, in the Civil Court of New York. And what she discovered was pretty surprising. What I found in looking at name change petitions, which were petitions filed with a lawyer, a large majority of them are filed by native-born Americans. And so really, my work is really about asking why native-born Americans in pretty large numbers would want to change their names and frequently call their names foreign, you know, not American, um, even though they were born in America. And the answer is, is, to a large extent, they start changing their names, in part because of the rise of 
uh, a state that begins to look at their names. And that is both a, a, like a government state, but it's also private. It is employers and it is schools um, and it is professions. Jews are the most successful white immigrants in becoming middle class. Um, and they are the most ambitious in becoming middle class. And as they rise into the middle class, they begin to face the growth of institutionalized anti-Semitism that in, in part is constructed around both their names and their changing of names. So colleges in the 19 teens um, and employers begin to ask people, what's your name? What's your father's name? Did anybody in your family change their name? Right. So they're both looking at Jewish names and there's contemporary reports that people with Jewish names are, you know, pretty much being not not given jobs, you know, asked to leave employment agencies or, or not being given, you know, the opportunity even to walk into the employment agencies. Um, Again, it wasn't just Jews who changed their names during this time, but there's good evidence to suggest that they did it at a significantly higher rate than other ethnic groups in New York. In 1932, for example, one measure suggests that almost two-thirds of the city's name change petitions were filed by people with Jewish-sounding last names. You know, I, I was in the New York City Civil Court, and they actually keep these big books. I did a lot of my research with these big, huge books where they kept the name changes um, in the early years, and then they kept these indexes, and it was alphabetical. And you'd go to, like, the C's, right? And they'd have, a, they had, basically, they kept lists of the names that are changed. And you'd go to the C's and you would just see Cohen, 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 Cohen. You'd have an entire page that might be all Cohen's, right, with one or two exceptions, right? Or you'd go to the G's and you just have a page of Greenbergs and Goldbergs. And I do feel sadness. I mean, I do feel like you're sort of seeing these names be erased, be washed away. I asked Professor Vermeglish, given this well-documented history of voluntary name changing, why the myth would persist that the changes happened at Ellis Island. Well, I think that name changing, especially after World War II, becomes something that is uh, a little bit shameful. I mean, there's there's a lot of there's certainly a lot of communal debate and discussion and disagreement about name changing. I think that there's a lot of unease about having changed names. And I think that sometimes the story is being told because people are a little bit uncomfortable or embarrassed. And I want to say, I mean, I write my book. I don't think there's any reason to be embarrassed or uncomfortable or ashamed. I mean, that's one of the main things that I think in my story is that I think people change their names because of a great deal of pressure to change their names. Um, it doesn't mean that these people don't want to be involved in the Jewish community. But there's pushback, right? There's, there's a lot of feeling from a lot of people in the community that this is something shameful, that you're betraying the community. Of all the gems the professor unearths in her book, the most amusing and heartbreaking are these moments where Jews, looking to change their names in court, find themselves petitioning in front of Jewish judges. In one case, a Brooklyn salesman named Louis Goldstein tries to get his name changed to Golding, claiming that his current name was un-American, not euphonious, and an economic handicap. Unfortunately for him, the judge he was assigned to was also named Louis Goldstein. Judge Goldstein denied the petition. In another case, Everett Levy encounters a judge named Aaron Levy, who does allow him to change his last name to Leroy but not without a damning reproach. Quote, He is wholly ignorant of the fact that the Bible tells us that the tribe of Levi never worshipped the golden calf. Let the application be granted, so that his people might well be rid of him. So yeah, 
Maybe it's no wonder that the Ellis Island name change myth became more widely circulated than the truth. It's easier on our conscience, more consistent with our self-perception as proud Jews, to have the burden of such a decision placed onto an imaginary bureaucrat than to admit that we made those decisions ourselves. At first, I find this all depressing. I think because of the way it stands in contrast to the example of biblical Jews, to the extent that I know anything about them. Because in the Torah, it just feels like it's story after story of Jews refusing, under threat of annihilation, to give up their Jewish identities. Kind of the opposite of caving to anti-Semitism and changing your name to blend in. Oh, I totally disagree that our ancestors were always gallantly upholding this tradition without any compromises. I think the tradition itself shows us that that's false. Enter Jewish author Dara Horn. Dara plays Hebrew school teacher with me for a minute, which, again, not having paid that much attention in Hebrew school, I appreciate. Today's Parsha, the long list of biblical Jews whose goyish names allowed them to pass. I mean, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's palace thinking he was a prince. Actually, Moses' own name is an example of kind of Judaizing of a, of a foreign name, you know, because it says, oh, Moshe was, you know, because he was drawn from the water. Like, really? Moses is like Ramesses, right? It's the suffix for a royal name where you append the name of the god. Like, this is an Egyptian name that we've, like, turned into a Jewish name. Esther changed her name from Hadassah, right? Esther is Ishtar. It's a, it's a Persian god. Same with Mordecai is Marduk. It's a Persian god. So, I mean, these people had like, you know, it would be like being named like, you know, Christine today, right? I mean, these are names from a different tradition. And all of a sudden, I feel much better about the whole thing. Like, changing your name isn't turning your back on your Jewish heritage. In fact, it's actually part of your Jewish heritage. Even the myth part, the part where we tell ourselves a comforting fable to alter the context of the name change. That's in the tradition, too. Um, there's a midrash that says that the way that the Jews maintain their heritage in Egypt is that they did not change their names. Well, it's obviously false because even Joseph, who's the first Jew in Egypt, so to speak, in the book of Genesis, Joseph is the one who starts the, you know, brings the Jewish people to Egypt. He changes his name. It's right there in the text in Genesis. He changes his name from Joseph to, uh, I think it's Snafnat Paneha. He changes it to an Egyptian name. It's like, not a secret here. So you made a practical decision to change your name yourself, which if people knew in your family that you had made that choice, they would think that this is basically my ancestors rejected my Jewish heritage. Think about what you're accomplishing by changing that story and blaming someone else for that name change. You are saying, no, I maintained my Jewish heritage. This place made me change my name. But to me, it was important to keep it and I want it to be important to you too. What's your advice for me on how should I go back to my grandma with this information and tell her that I don't think that our name was literally changed at Ellis Island? How should I approach that conversation? I think if you're going back to that person in your family from whom you heard that story to tell them, you know, this name was not changed at Ellis Island, I think that you thank them for telling this story and for bringing this story to your family. That's going to be a tough sell. I, I gotta, <laughs> thank you, Grandma. I I don't believe you, but thank you. Well, I mean, you're not saying I don't believe you, but thank you. You're saying your family name wasn't changed at Ellis Island. It was changed by someone in your family who was under extraordinary pressure that we are so fortunate to not be able to even imagine now. 
by assigning this to someone at Ellis Island, they spared us the pain of saying, look how horrific it was to live in this time. They made us believe that it never was necessary for us to change our names, that it was simply a bureaucratic mistake. This country has always welcomed us. Thank you for making me believe that, because that's a belief that we need. As much as I appreciate Dara's sentiment, that is not what I say to Grandma Razi. Actually, I have some new information for her. She'd advise me to get in touch with her cousin Harriet, who's been compiling the family history for years. And when I did, Harriet informed me that the name was definitely not changed from Belfer to Bell at Ellis Island. Max changed it. The best reason she could glean for this decision came from my Grandma Razi's brother, my Uncle Hesh who reported that their father struggled with his English and elected to go by Bell because it had fewer letters and was easier to spell. I don't know. What do you think about that? It's possible. It's possible that it was easier for him to use Bell instead of Belfer. He didn't know English very well, and it made it shorter and easier. Could be. Do you think he maybe changed it from Belfer to Bell because Bell is less identifiably Jewish? No, I do not. And why do you think, I don't know, why do you think he would have said that he he had his name, that an immigration officer changed his name if he made the decision himself? I don't know. It was never a big discussion. It was never a big, of great importance. Because nobody, because people didn't ask him about it or he didn't no, like to talk about it? either that I recall that never came up very often. I keep wondering if Dara's explanation applies to our family. Like, maybe it doesn't at all. Maybe Max really did change his name just because it was easier to spell, and my grandmother got a hold of the Ellis Island myth purely by accident, portending nothing but the ubiquity of The Godfather Part Two on our national collective memory. Or maybe Max was shrewd enough to know that Bell was less likely than Belfer to out him as a Jew. And the Ellis Island story served exactly the purpose Dara suggested, to shield his kids from the pain of that decision. Either way, he didn't raise his children to believe that anti-Semitism was a part of their lives in America at all. What did, what did Max talk about from that time, from when he, uh, when he was younger? How difficult life was in Russia. How glad he was to be able to leave and stay alive because the Russian army were after him. They were after all the Jews. But I don't think that he was too concerned about uh, anti-Semitism here. Do you think it was important to him that you guys fit in more or more important to him that you remain really distinctively Jewish and different? Oh, it was it was never an issue. You could have it both ways. We fit in wherever we were and a lot of where we were was populated by Jews, not all. Not everybody was Jewish. We got along with our non-Jewish neighbors and and it never seemed to make a difference. We did what we did, they did what they did, and when our paths crossed, they crossed as friends. 
Okay. Thank you. Uh, thanks again for your time, Grandma. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. You are. You're one of my favorite people to interview, actually. <laughs> you're very relaxed. Because you think I'm making it all up. <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. I don't think you're making it up. I I totally believe you're... trying to think of the name of the person from Whippany Paper Boy. I never said I'd ever forget that name. <laughs> That was Noah Levinson and Unorthodox. You can listen to all their episodes by subscribing to their show, Unorthodox, or by going to tabletmag.com unorthodox. Okay, I'm going to go back to work on our new live show and episodes, and you will hear from us very soon. Chag Sameach, Moadim Lesimcha, and Yalla Bye.